Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R on this glorious Sunday morning. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Hang on, let me turn your microphone on. That's even better. <laughs> that definitely helps. <laughs> hey, it's Sunday, Sunday morning. Come on. How are you? Oh, I'm good. And a quick uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. And, yes. You know, and, and parents in general and carers. So, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And we've got Gracie on the line from Texas. Good morning, Gracie. Good evening, Saturday. Yes. I think. Yes. Saturday evening for you. Yes. Good evening. Mother's Day for us is tomorrow. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, uh, a big cheerio to all the mothers out there and also a big hello to all the people who are probably struggling a bit with Absolutely. today. Um, it's not yeah. a happy day for all. No, for sure. So a big hello to you as well and hope you're doing okay and bunkered down, which I know um, many people do. So, yeah, important yeah. stuff. We've got an hour of science for you, though. We're talking with uh, an artist from WA about some really interesting installations they've got over there. A little bit later in the show, Grace is going to talk us all about embalming a little bit later. Might have something to do with her husband's work. I think he embalm, embalms people. Yep. Is that right, Gracie? Yes. I'm just thinking yes, about that's actually how we met. That's how you met. I'm not sure I want yes. to know that story. Like, you, you met, he was trying to embalm you and you're still alive and you said, hey, that's how you met? Not quite. Not but, quite. We'll get more into it later in the show. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, let's start off with some news. Uh, Dr. Ewan, do you, want to, do you want to start us off? There's sure. A lot of stuff well, speaking going on. of Western Australia before, um, some good news environmental, uh, a good news environmental story, which I know is rare, unfortunately, and particularly from me often, but <laughs> numbats, uh, which are these wonderful stripy marsupials that I'm sure many uh, people are aware of. Um, they're one of a couple of species that are diurnal, so come out during the day, which is quite rare for most of our mammals. Mm. So the musky rat kangaroo is another one of those. It's found in North Queensland. But what's really exciting is that this endangered species, which there was thought to be only about 1,300 left in the wild, so outside of these sanctuaries that we have in some parts of Australia, that's a pretty low number. Mm. Once your numbers get to sort of in the thousands or lower, we start getting really, really worried about your prospects of survival. It's kind of one bushfire away, right? Yeah, Yeah. and and genetic problems and all sorts of other issues. Um, a camera trapping study that was done in the Upper, Warra re- Upper Warren region of Western Australia has found that there's a lot more uh, numbats than we first thought. And the problem with surveying numbats often is that they're quite hard to see. They're not that big. They're, they're quite little. Uh, and they scurry around and they're quite cryptic. Hmm. Camera traps, which are these wonderful devices that we can basically strap to a tree, an animal walks past, it takes a photo, they were distributed across this region. And... By looking at the stripes on the numbats, we can determine that this numbat's different from that numbat and so on and so forth, and we can derive a density estimate. And so this sort of thing's been done for things like whale sharks as well. So, you know, whale sharks have these beautiful patterns with spots all over them, Mm. and they're distinctive like a leopard and so on and so forth. So we can start to use technology uh, to get much better information about our species. Uh, In this case, yeah, like I said, it's a good news story. So the numbers are about double. The area that they found in actually doesn't have formal protection, so it's not a national park. So that will also hopefully help um, Mm. basically sort of prioritise this area as an area that needs a lot more care, you know, try and reduce the threats, whether it be feral cats and foxes, but also things like forestry and mining and so forth. So, yeah, look, it's it's a fantastic story. And um, as I will talk about later in the show, we need all the good news we can get when it comes to our threatened species uh, and and the the environment in general. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Very nice. Gracie, what do you got for us? Well, I have a slightly bad news uh, climate story. Okay. So, um, so the U.S. has really struggled with forest fires, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, this, year, this year, more than in years past. Uh, for instance, in California, fires have already scorched more than double their five-year average for wow. this period of time. So, And firefighters, of course, are limited by what they can see and what they're told by radio whenever they're trying to fight the fire. Um, and Changing the climate is not only driving more of the total fires, but also more fires that start or grow at night. Hmm. There was a recent study uh, that was just published in Nature 
um, that examined tens of thousands of wildfires around the world, and it found that nighttime fires have increased by 7% mm. throughout the world since 2003. And in the U.S., that rise has actually been 28%. Whoa. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the reason, according to that study, is that the rising temperatures have gradually reduced the moisture levels mm. that the night air can hold, and so hence more forest fires at night. Yep. And so... Uh, the U.S. Forest Service is preparing to use drones, both to spot new fires and another that can actually set fires around existing wildfires to deprive them of fuel right. um, and to kind of kind of limit that spread of, of uh, forest fires. And so these drones are being adapted from autonomous aircrafts right now that are used by the military. Well, wow. it's full on, isn't it? When you hear those numbers of 28%, like I, I remember once being in Santa Barbara when basically, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the forest was burning to the ocean, I think is, as the way they put it and, um, had, had a hard night sleeping because of all the water bombing helicopters nonstop flying overhead. You know, you don't realize it yeah. unless you're right in the middle of it, just how bad it was. And the, the issue with the helicopters raises an important point too, is not only that the fires are not going out overnight, mm. which makes it obviously harder for firefighters to put the fires out, but the fire seasons are lasting much yep. longer now too. So the sort of demand for equipment yep. uh, is becoming much higher. And so in the past, we used to actually share equipment with mm. California, yeah, yeah. between Australia and California. Not anymore. And now that's becoming a problem because, yeah. like, well, our fire seasons overlap, yeah. um, whereas in the past, less so. So, yeah, it's just a huge problem. Yeah, no, it's a big issue. Mm. Right. I saw a quote uh, from an actual firefighter in California that said that they used to talk about, you know, fire season, and mm. now it's just fire year. It's just all year. Right. There's no season. Yep. Yeah. So. Extraordinary. Yeah. I think um, we're, we're starting to see, you know, whether people want to admit it or not, we're starting to see those effects. And of course, this, this plays into the issues around drought in California as well, and the, the water supply issues, which are quite substantial. And, you know, that's not going away. Right, exactly. Mm. Well, the hope is that these drones could potentially help firefighters in that way as well. So yep. we'll see. Sounds like a good plan, something to try. Folks, uh, one of the things I thought I would mention to you, a uh, good buddy of mine, Jared McKenna, sent me an email last week about, um, I'm trying to work out, what's the date today, Ewan? Is it the 8th? Uh, I think it's the 8th. That sounds about okay. right. Sounds about right. One of those it is the that 8th. never knows what day it is. Yeah, well, <laughs> importantly, it is the 8th because between the 9th and 11th, the Pint of Science Festival um, is back in pubs this year, which I don't think it's right for the is. last couple of years. But it's back, and um, you know this is happening uh, across Melbourne. Uh, and you know, if people want to go along and hear from researchers talking about their work in local pubs, they can do that. And I think uh, some of these events, you know, I've, I've been to one or two over the year, over the years. Say, you know, over the last couple of years, I don't think I've been anywhere. But um, and you know, sometimes you get really amazing stuff yeah. that you know never ends up in the mainstream media. It, it ends up on he- on our show sometimes because it's not always complete. Yep. And sometimes it's good just to hear about things in process. And that's the sort of stuff you'll hear in you know, the Pint of Science program. So, look, it's on. If you want to get the details, folks, go to pintofscience.com.au forward slash events forward slash Melbourne. I'm sure if you just Google Pint of Science Melbourne, you'll probably find that as well. But they run between uh, tomorrow. And Wednesday, so um, you know, there's nothing else to do. No, it's great. I've spoke. I, I gave a talk in one, and I have to say too, the other thing you find out at those events is that not only scientists know lots about science, but they have many other talents. And I spoke in a session where <laughs> the, one of the presenters actually was a fantastic tap dancer. So oh, I was really? I was blown away. I felt very very inadequate because this person was giving this amazing talk and being able to tap dance. And what did so, you do? I just gave a boring science talk, you know, oh. so I'm just one-dimensional, Shane. Well, you know, you, you're sporting a reasonable mullet. You could talk about, you know... Mu- mullet? No, it's, it's equal length. I think mullet's a bit harsh, but... Uh... Sorry, it's just the angle and the lighting. Um, look, one other thing that I found uh, really interesting this week, I'm not sure if people picked up on this, but NASA put out some new data from basically one of the uh, the the black hole studies the x-ray imaging black hole studies of perseus of the perseus cluster of yeah. galaxies and you know there's a lot of, a lot of stuff there that's really cool but one of the things they did was they converted some of the data to sound mm. and so you can hear it and i thought i might just play it on yeah. on the show it's kind of it's kind of weird and wild stuff but just have a listen to this this is what it sounds like now this has been sort of up converted in terms of frequency millions of times because we we wouldn't hear it yep. but these these are sort of the waves that go through the region and so forth yeah. and they've converted that sound so it's a bit weird yeah you ready here we go anyway so that's one of them which yeah. is kind of 
It's kind of weird. It is is quite weird. Kind of spooky. And then there's another one they've done, and this is a little bit different because this is where they've taken um, the center of galaxy M87 that's been studied for a very long time with regards to the black hole in the center. And there's not just information here from the black hole, but also from the jets and things that come out of that region. And what they've done is they've overlaid the data from several different types of telescopic um, observations. So there's x-rays, there's optical, etc. And each one's been um, given sort of a slightly different sound frequency. So this this is a bit more sort of elaborate, this one. But the first thing you'll hear is there's quite a a louder sound at the start. um, And that's essentially the x-ray imagery of the black hole, which is very intense. And so this one sounds a little bit different. You can hear this. Anyway, there you go. So that one, that sounds, I mean, that's a different mix. That's but... more new agey. It's like oh. those shops when you walk into with all the sort of, you know, the, yeah. the charms and stuff. And that's, that's what it reminds me of. But uh, it's very pleasant. Yeah, it's pleasant. I can actually listen to that so as a sort of background. Background, yeah. whales humping kind of. Um... Yeah, it does have a bit of a whale sound, especially the first one, that yeah, yeah. deep kind of resonance. Very but, deep. Uh, and it's a lot deeper in reality, as yeah. I said, of upconverted. But yeah. um, the thing I find fascinating, you, you could kind of, that could be a background soundtrack. You yeah, know, well, a bit I'm, I'm waiting to see a chart on, you know, on, on, the, on the iTunes or something. Yeah, <laughs> see if it gets the number one. <laughs> you never know. Anyway, look, it's, it's interesting. I always find when, when NASA, NASA often puts out these um, comments that some big news is coming next week. Yeah. This was it. Yeah. No, I like it. It's yeah. different. And sometimes it's, um, sometimes with NASA, it's, you know, something very substantial. But they kind of mix in about, for me, about 80% of most people aren't really going to care about that with 20% of, holy crap, Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so it keeps us interested. But this one was an interesting one for me, just, you know, different ways to a, see a different the data. way to engage with data, right? Which yeah. I think is, is fantastic. So. And I think, you know, depending on, on your own personal capabilities, yeah. you know, not everyone can look at these pictures. Exactly. exactly. And so being able to essentially see them in different ways is really fascinating. Absolutely. And the sonification, you know, which is yep. the term we use for, for this data, I, I think is just exceptional. We yep. see that... Um, yep. We see that all the time. I'm not sure if you could hear that you're in there, uh, uh, Gracie. I don't think you could because the, the sound doesn't come out that way. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of kind of no, cool I'll, stuff. Yeah, I'll have to go back and listen to it. Yeah, have a look. It's on the NASA website. You can uh, you can view them all. They're on YouTube now as well. But um, they're starting to do the sonification things, which I think is um, is pretty cool. Anyway, folks, we're going to take a break in a moment. Uh, I'll play you some music, and when we come back, we'll have our first guest uh, for today. So you're listening to Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got a big show for you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the line with us now, all the way from the University of Western Australia, is Dr. Ionet Zur. Good morning. How are we going over there? Good morning. We're going, going well. Excellent. It's great to talk to you. It's, I'm sorry it's so early on a Sunday morning for you guys, a couple of hours behind us, but we very much appreciate you coming online. Now, I was uh, sent some of the stuff on the work that you and colleagues are doing, which was really, I thought it was really fascinating about this thing you call symbiotica. Um, give us a bit of a rundown, I know, on what that is, um, because, of course, now you're an artist, Yes. Yes, I am an artist and I'm working with biology. Yep. And many of the people who work in the symbiotica labs are artists working with the sciences, mainly the life sciences. So personally, I work a lot with tissue engineering um, and growing um, semi-living sculptures. But we have artists going all the way from working with uh, DNA to um organs, cell culture, plants, and uh, ecosystems. And I think um, that in these days, it's extremely important to get people from the arts to understand um, in a very kind of um, uh, intimate way, uh, living system and scientific procedures and biotechnology as it happens in laboratories um, and in the world, and uh, work with that to create um, cultural um, expressions, creates debates about it, and try and think where we want to take those kind of technology into the future, especially at the moment where we all know that we're facing um, ecological disasters. So this mm. lab, which was um, a we established it um, together with the Runcats back in 2000, was the first lab that offered um, the facilities, the technologies, and the expertise in the life sciences 
two artists and other people, philosophers, um, poets, geographers, etc., the ability to work hands-on with those technologies and take it out to the public in the form of exhibitions, conferences, etc. Yeah, at the moment, I think there are more and more laboratories um, around the world um, based on the model of Symbiotica that was established in uh, WA. And I believe that over in the east of Australia, in Melbourne and Sydney, also now their initiative to um, create art and science um, kind of hubs. But Symbiotica was the first one, and it's, it is located in the Faculty of Science. Yep. So it's it's nice that we bring the artists into the sciences and uh, making those kind of um, what we call cross-fertilization yep. and cross-contaminations <laughs> among the disciplines. And we all, you know, both the scientists, the artists, the other people who come around, the residents, um, try to figure out what, you know, where are we going and what kind of future we want to have for humans and non-humans. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, look, yeah. it's fascinating. I know you're, my background's in physics, and I think uh, when I was at the University of Melbourne, I probably learned the most when I was working with the people from the Victorian College of the Arts. Um, yeah, that's not, yeah. The, not, the, not to throw cold water on my old science colleagues, but, <laughs> but, you know, I really did learn a lot about the engagement with society through the arts and what that looked like and how we could do that better. And I think there is a, there is a fundamental gap in terms of uh, not to, not so much training with scientists but engagement with scientists from other parts of the tertiary education sector mm. and I think the more of that there is the better. So what you're doing, you're right we do have some hubs in Melbourne and Sydney doing similar things um, but the more of this there is the better. Now ha- how do you find working amongst these you know annoying little scientists I mean you're embedded in their facility I mean what, what's that like? Oh, some of them are my best friends. Um, (laughs) And they are annoying artists as well. So we all, you know, we all people with a personality. I've been working with uh, my scientist collaborators for uh, years now. And we are really good um, colleagues. And um, trying when we exhibit to, uh, we are very interdisciplinary. So when we do exhibition and when we, you know, have talks to the public, we try and get both disciplines to talk together and that's where interesting things are happening Mm. also we have uh, postgraduate studies um and what we do is that we have um a supervisor from the arts and then supervisor from the sciences and together they are supervising the students so there is really uh interesting kind of mix of those kind of um you know knowledge system and thinking and and you know misunderstandings that we very much embrace um and i think you know again what's important today is to be able to um talk to each other even if we grew up with different kind of um understanding the world or if we um you know looking at the world from different kind of uh lenses yeah so yeah yeah what one one of the things that we find i know in especially in the biological sciences and you know i know that's where you guys are somewhat focused is we often find the research uh, gets a bit of in front of the ethical discussions and this can be really problematic in terms of how these things are played out we've seen this with Things like, you know, CRISPR gene editing, you know, technologies. We've seen it with stem cells over the years. We're all sorts of yeah. things where, you know, the, the science, you know, moves pretty quickly and sometimes the the sort of ethical debates can take a while to catch up. And I can see that's where, you know, interaction with, with the arts is really, you know, crucial to those conversations. I, I know you, you, you had some programs there around even things like growing artificial meat and so forth. I mean, give us an example of one of those because, I mean, that yeah. sounds fascinating for the community to be able to engage with that technology and, and talk about what that means for our future. Yeah. So some of our works became actually the precursor for the industry that is called at the moment cellular agriculture. What we did, and we did it as an art project with irony, complete irony, was to um, uh, use tissue engineering to create to create in vitro meat. Mm-hmm. So to take um, tissue uh, cells from uh, an animal 
while it's still alive and able to propagate the cells and grow the cells in the lab in vitro. And we even had an exhibition after we grew the cells for three months in the gallery. We had the dinner where everyone sat together and ate this kind of in vitro meat. Wow. Um, it, yeah, and then we move on to the same idea of people wear leather. Why don't we create leather-like material in the lab in vitro um, and then rather than kill animals? Mm. Um, again, there, this is much more complicated than that because when we grow those kind of cells in the lab, we still need proteins that are derived from animals. So, you know, it is, it's more about what we call mediated um, kind of utopia, the idea that rather than see the um, victims of our consumption face-to-face, we are having those kind of engineering and technological processes that remove them away from from us. So we still, uh, for example, in the simplest way, we still go to the supermarket and buy the meat without really, you know, and the meat mm, is yeah. square and abstract. We yeah. don't think about the animals. So now we can even go further and grow it from the beginning uh, in the lab. And people do fall into the idea that we can consume uh, in abundance without the consequences. And we see a full industry of this kind yep. of fantasies that are created. So it is, again, a very interesting uh, interaction for us with the public. And we would like the public to come to the lab and see how things are made so they understand in more details, um, you know, what, how the marketing is hiding certain things um, and trying to package this kind of utopian future. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. So... No, look. I, mean, it's, look we, I think we could talk about some of these uh, these exhibitions that all day because they're just fascinating. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein Go Go, and and I think you know, good luck with this. I, I really have such a um, an interest personally in the role that the arts can play in the way in which the sciences connects with the community and. And also the way in which the community connects back with the sciences and, and indicates, you know, where exactly. the value is in both directions. And I think that's something that's been missed very much in our education systems, in the way in which we go about our communication processes and so forth for, for all the science and engineering, et cetera, that we do. And it's just great to hear that you, you're doing some of this stuff. And it's such a, a sort of bleeding edge, if I can use that term, for the, especially for the meat products, um, <laughs> you know, with regards to the, the, the programs you're running. So keep it up. And uh, next time I'm over, over there in Perth, I'll uh, have to drop by and have a look. Please come do so. Yes, thank you very much, Shane. Thanks have so a much. Lovely afternoon. You too, folks. That was Dr. Ionet Zur from the University of Western Australia talking about some of the amazing uh, programs that we've got going over there, connecting up the arts and the sciences. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Grace is back on the line, hopefully uh, from Texas she can hear us. I think we can hear you. Yes. yes. Excellent. Uh, we're zipping around the globe a bit today, you know, over to you in Texas, back over to WA, back to Texas, back to Melbourne. Real Yay happening. for technology. Now, you, uh, you have some weird story about you and your husband and embalming, which I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Did this involve a white van? <laughs> no, but I can tell you the story. Okay. Um, so basically, just for anybody who doesn't know first, embalming is basically preserving a human body with chemicals to delay the decomposition of the body after death. Um, also to like sanitize the body and in some cases make it presentable, like for funeral viewings or like medical training. Um, so yeah, I mentioned my husband and I met over embalming. So he's actually a Texas <laughs> licensed funeral director and embalmer, which he did before working at the place I'm doing my PhD right now. So the Health Science Center. Um, and he helps run a program where people donate their body to science when they pass away to be used for things like medical research and, ed and education. So I was one of the medical research people. So I had a research study to look at musculoskeletal properties in donors with amputations and how do musculoskeletal changes occur with amputation. Um, so that's how we met. So he got my list of inclusion criteria for donors with amputation. And then whenever he got someone that met that criteria, he would contact me. Uh. So that's how we met. I was really hoping there was going to be a funeral home involved in this story. And, 
you yeah, know, no. at the end of a service, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that probably would have been less weird yeah. than our situation. But, <laughs> well, that's yeah, a good very story. Unique situation. It's a good story. Yeah, I think about. there was there was one time where uh, I was supposed to meet him in his office, and he emailed me saying like, "Oh, by the way, if I'm not in my office, this is my number." And then the rest was like history, essentially. So. <laughs> Okay. Um, now we've been married for two years, so, yeah, um, but yeah, so, uh, of course, which ancient culture doesn't bombing make you think of Egyptian? Yes. Egyptians. Yeah. Mummies. Yeah, so, mummies. His mother yes. said mummies. Yeah. Yes. They're not the same and ones. <laughs> <laughs> Very close though. Mm. Yeah. So and a lot of people think of these really elaborate mummification methods, of course, that we've heard about. Um, but actually, prehistoric Egyptians would bury their dead directly in the desert, so directly in the sand, so mm. that the sand and the hot climate could perform kind of a natural sort of mummification. Um, mm. And before pharaohs, they started using coffins, and then they started using these above-ground tombs and pyramids. Um, and then this led actually to more rapid decay of the body, because now the body's being protected by by pyramids and by tombs and things mm. like this. And so they, that kind of forced them to develop better mummification methods than just burying people in the sand. So mm. there were a few natural products that they used during mummification. So uh, I know most of us have probably heard they would completely remove the lungs and the intestines and other organs, um, except the heart. Uh, and then they would pack the inside of the body cavity with a substance called natron that was basically like salt to kind of aid in that drying process. Um, and then they also used palm wine to clean the body and then cedar oil, which was kind of like a natural resin to inject it into the bodies, uh, for the deceased for embalming. Um, and then the brain was also removed through the nose, uh, via, uh, like a really thin metal tool. And the brain was actually discarded, interestingly, because they didn't think it was important. So out of all those organs. Yeah. I mean, it's probably hard to get into one of those little canopic jars too, right? I mean, those <laughs> yes. jars aren't that big, and the brain is a yeah, big... Yeah, that's a good point. The brain is big. Yeah, that's a... Yes, that's a good point. I didn't think about There's a whole lot of Egyptologists. A yeah. whole lot of Egyptologists <laughs> listening to the show going, damn it, we should have thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'm sure. A, what about all the blood and stuff? You know, like, because, mm. you know, one of the things that you do, you know, taxonomists do, you know, is remove all the fluids. Yeah. Did they drain all that as well? Yeah, so I believe that they did. I didn't look too much more into that, actually. Um, but I can talk a little bit more about some more modern mm. techniques that they use for that. Oh, yeah. Um, what was interesting, too, to me is that people actually were trained in Europe, specialists, to use the ancient Egyptian method uh, up until, like, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Wow. Which is really crazy. Um, and it really wasn't until the 1860s during the American Civil War where we were basically trying to transport soldiers that had died from battlefields back home for burial um, mm. that someone else developed a technique that involved draining blood and then embalming the body with a fluid made with arsenic right. for preservation. So that was really the first time I'd, I'd ever seen anything that related to blood. Yeah, because it's uh, you can imagine if this. they were still using but, those Egyptian sort of techniques and someone dies on the battlefield and you, you, you know, carrying the body back after some embalming and they've been using the, look, there's all these jars you've got to take as well. There's not just the body, but here's this person's, right. we've labeled the jars. Don't get them mixed up with that guy's jars. That's a <laughs> right. separate set of jars. I mean, it's, it's not exactly the most efficient sort of way of moving things. Right. And it was super expensive as well. Mm. Um, yeah. And especially, like you said, like the time and cost and like the mental effort involved in keeping track of all of that, I'm mm. sure got pretty ridiculous. Um, but it, it was interesting, too, that they developed the fluid with arsenic mm. um, because arsenic, obviously, it's poison. Mm. Uh, it would contaminate the groundwater supplies. Um, and what was interesting that I found was that there were a lot of legal concerns that people suspected of murder by arsenic poisoning might claim that it was actually used for the deceased bodies embalming. So wow. they weren't actually poisoned yeah. by arsenic and then they would get, they would get free yeah. uh, and kind of off the hook there, which was kind of interesting to me, something I didn't think about. Yeah. Um, and then it was just a few years later that a German chemist developed formaldehyde, which is still used today. So we've still been using formaldehyde since the 18, 1867. Um, so it's, it's really kind of the foundation for the modern methods of embalming. Um, and it, it still is pretty toxic. We'll get more into like the environmental effects of yeah. that a little bit later. But it's a lot less toxic than arsenic, which is great. 
Um, and then someone a few years after that developed uh, this method of modern arterial injection. And so arterial embalming basically means that they will um, basically uh, slice into the uh, common carotid artery, which is kind of near your neck area. Um, and then they'll pump uh, the embalming fluid through that until the blood gets out of that same vein. So it basically circulates through your entire system and then comes back out to drain. Um, and mm. then if they're if there's uh, somebody with poor circulation, they can use different arteries as well, uh, like the femoral artery or anything that's like a larger artery. Um, and the whole process usually takes about two to four hours, but it can vary a lot, as you can imagine, based on how large the person is, if they need any sort of restoration from like a trauma or an autopsy or anything like that. Um, there have been some that have been known to take days, wow. uh, depending on what kind of restoration is involved. Um, and embalming is meant to temporarily preserve the body. How long do you think the body gets preserved for? Uh, I would have thought probably months as a result of that, Dep but very much depending on the environmental conditions. You it depends know, depends what people have eaten too, right? Like, isn't there right. that new science that sort of suggests that you know recent people, sort of you know our, our sort of generation and so forth, that we don't decompose very quickly because we're full of preservatives? <laughs> Is that right, Gracie? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, pretty accurate. Um, there were some places that I saw that estimated it actually takes a hundred years, wow. give Whoa. or take, uh, for the body to decompose after being completely embalmed. But of course that depends on, um, like the exact chemicals that were used, yep. environmental factors, like you said earlier, um, what kind of things they were buried with, uh, those kinds of things. Mm. So, yeah. um, yeah. And then on kind of the flip side of that, for anatomy education or for medical training, the first priority is long-term preservation. So they actually use more concentrated formaldehyde that's about four times as much formaldehyde uh, with fluid that's about two times as strong. Um, and they're made without any dyes or perfumes. Uh, so you could see probably on medical shows you've seen um, anatomically embalmed cadavers. Kind of, They make them have this kind of gray coloration. Mm -hmm. Um, even in acting, um, due to both kind of the high formaldehyde concentration mixed with the blood, and then also this lack of red dye that's typically injected into someone who's going to have like a funeral viewing. They right. actually will include a red dye to kind of make them look a little bit more lifelike. Oh, so, they um, pull, that's not so they pull out the, the blood and replace it with red dye, essentially, as yes. part of it, so that it maintains yes. that color. Yes. Jeez, I wouldn't mind if they replaced, in my case, do it with like green dye so it looked like a Vulcan or something. <laughs> Did they do that? That's a great idea. I bet someone has that in their will somewhere. You know, you should that, tell your you husband. Tell your husband because yeah. there's a whole other Trekkies over there that would sign up for that, and that would be that would, that's a big business idea right there. That's a million dollar idea right there for free to you, Gracie. Yeah, that definitely is. I could see a lot of funeral directors throwing a fit about that, yeah. like having to purchase all these different dyes. Uh, yeah, that's funny. I, he's listening right now, so I'm sure he's written that down <laughs> he's, already. He's, no, he's not listening. He's in the car. He's gone down to the local <laughs> hardware store to get some stuff. He's going down to paint yes. it, actually. <laughs> he's already he's already forming his own company around this, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, excellent idea. Yep. Um, but yeah, just to talk about uh, the embalming chemicals a little bit more, too. So we talked a lot about formaldehyde and some of mm. the environmental effects that are associated with that. So formaldehyde is actually a naturally occurring substance. Um, so mm. we, as, a, as human beings, we produce approximately 1.5 ounces a day. And it's just a normal, mm. healthy like byproduct of metabolism, actually. So the chemical formula is CH2O. Um, so there's nothing really, you know... Um, super complex about that chemical structure. Um, it does carry a slight positive charge, which then binds to an electron-rich nitrogen group. Um, so that results in cross-linking and bonding proteins with other proteins in DNA, um, which basically renders them dysfunctional and no longer useful. Mm. So that's why it's, it's typically used as a preservative in really excess contents, and it can be toxic in these yeah. excess contents. Um, so it basically prevents cellular decay and renders the tissue unsuitable for use as any sort of nutrient source for bacteria as well. So it's a really good kind of disinfectant, if you will, uh, as well. Um, unfortunately, as we've talked about, it's not very environmentally friendly. So formaldehyde is carcinogenic mm. in humans and animals. Um, just because this cross-linking can cause the DNA to keep the cells from halting the replication process that they typically undergo. So it can actually cause cancer. Mm. Um and organisms in the soil and the groundwater are also 
quite sensitive to it as well, uh, which they can be damaged at a lower concentration than humans are damaged by. So um, unfortunately, some other traditional methods for burial and cremation are not that great either. So traditional cremation uses around 36 kilograms of gas to fire our bodies at around a thousand degrees Celsius for about an hour and a half. And so these emissions include CO2 from burning the gas, CO2 from our bodies, also mercury from uh, dental stuff that's used in fillings and our teeth. Um, And so what was interesting, I found this stat from the UK in 2012, uh, when filters were put on crematorium chimneys, around 16% of the UK's mercury emissions came from <clears throat> uh, mouths from the dead, they said, basically, <laughs> of like these fillings, like mercury wow. from these fillings leaking out from cremation. Yeah, wow. um, and on average, each of us carries about two to four grams of mercury around in our teeth. Um, and I also found a stat that about 100,000 Australians were cremated last year as well so you hmm. and it, it sounds like that may be one of the one of the um most common ways that people are uh i guess disposed yeah. of you yeah. could say yeah wow in australia uh, i still want um, a viking funeral that's what i want but does that involve the yeah. cremation out on the pond thing with the yeah, arrow yeah they put you on a, yeah, yeah. On a raft and yeah. then they set the Float raft on fire and push you out into the water into the, Do, out to sea but i want the same version with someone shooting an arrow yeah the well, that's, arrow. that's even cooler i agree i mean yeah. i'm not sure i have a friend and there's not that many chemicals involved i feel like that's relatively Sweet environmentally yeah. friendly yeah i'm worried i'm thinking right, about my yeah. friendship group and i don't know anyone who can <laughs> fire an arrow with that accuracy and i'm worried yeah, that I, it could, would, I could fire I'm, I'm not sure how far would go on for a while yeah yeah uh, and actually, a common misconception is uh, traditional burials uh, will actually um, bury your body about uh, 1.5 meters deep. Yep. And they're often stored in like metal caskets that are lined mm. with plastic. So while the caskets themselves yeah. take a long time to break down and the lack of oxygen in there means that the body is decomposing anaerobically, which basically produces a lot of methane gas. And so even just being buried traditionally with an, an outer covering like that isn't necessarily environmentally friendly. I, I have to ask, Gracie, so when you watch movies with your partner and you see them digging up the dead and bodies and stuff, <laughs> do you just look at that and go, that's all wrong? They wouldn't look like that. <laughs> that's funny. I don't think we've actually ever watched anything where that has come up. Although we're watching an action show right now where I feel like that should have come up several times. <laughs> um, we're pretty big into dramas, so I'm actually surprised that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it's bound to happen. I mean, in some of the zombie films and that, I'm sure he'd have pretty strong opinions about what they look like. You know, that that <laughs> yes. one hasn't that one clearly yes. hasn't been embalmed. Exactly, poor embalming. Yeah. I know, I know, we do share that with uh, like clothes or like Halloween costumes or things like that that aren't anatomically correct. <laughs> We're like, you know, that person doesn't have the correct number of cervical vertebrae, or you know. Um, but. Well. Yeah, so uh, I'm pretty much done with that story. I know uh, I have a whole other section here that got really out of hand on like green burials and how to do environmentally friendly burials. So next time we'll talk about uh, being buried underneath a tree, Mm. being buried potentially in a coral reef, being sent to space, being melted, being freeze dried. We'll talk about all those things. I think you just got Shane's attention. Yeah, being sent to space. (laughs) Well, because I mean, essentially, you know, this is a teaser episode where you've said to people, not only do you have to worry about your environmental impact while you're alive, you also have to worry about it when you die. Absolutely. And in episode two from Gracie, we're going to tell you how to do that, how to be buried Uh on a coral reef. I'm just picturing Shane being shot into space now. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give a long bus a call after the show and see what he can arrange. Um, In fact, you could just do the whole thing, you know, kill you and and bury you. It's a one-way trip. Yeah, one-way trip. Anyway, thank you, Gracie, folks. We're going to take a, a break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Ewan about the environment. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be some serious stuff. So if you've got alcohol or coffee, coffee go and get it now. Yeah, whatever, whatever your advice is. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you're eating, it'll be fine. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Welcome back to Einstein and Gogo, everybody. You're listening to a science show. If you haven't worked that out yet by our discussions of the dead over the last <laughs> 20 minutes, I'm not sure what else we can do. But uh, speaking of things dying, our planet is dying, Ewan. It is dying, and it's a perfect segue because, yeah, we are unfortunately talking about a lot of death. And, in fact, we were discussing just before the show, Shane, that, you know, Australia is about to vote soon, and uh, there's many issues to be discussed, obviously, mm. when people are thinking about who they might vote for and so forth. But 
two of the, I would argue the biggest challenges that society, humanity face right now is the climate change crisis mm. and the extinction crisis. Yep. And we've heard next to nothing about them yep. in the campaign so far, which is really disturbing. Are we taking the same approach that we've done with the pandemic, though, and just declared it over? Uh, it feels that I, way. Because I, I think that's working. <laughs> that's working with the pandemic. You know, people say, it's over. Yeah, I'm that's tired right. of it. It's over. So, you know, if we do that and we take that approach with climate, maybe yeah. some success there as well. If we just put our heads in the sand for long enough, everything will just sort itself yeah. out, apparently. I mean, in, in, on a serious note on that, of course, you know, people are probably aware, but whilst we've been broadcasting this show, approximately two people have died of the pandemic so yeah, far wow. this morning. That's that's how well it's going. That's the global rate. So yeah, that's no, no, that's, that's that's in Australia. Just in Australia. Just in Australia. Wow. Two people have died. Like I'm, I'm doing the stats here yeah, over a yeah, week. Yeah, of course. But during the period of you know we lose a person every I think it's 36 minutes. Yeah. So these are the things you don't hear. They're, no. they're not reported like that. Not reported. And I think that yeah. makes it you know more I guess yeah sobering when you hear it put that way. Yeah. 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 So anyway, but climate's very similar. It's yeah, the climate and the environment. The and so you know. You've, you've heard me talk about the environment before, and but unfortunately it hasn't been really brought up at all in the election campaign. And so I guess it's it's a good time, I think, to sort of think about, well, where are we at, you know, in terms of our environment and what's happening? And I'll, I'll also talk about what can be done because mm. the good thing in Australia is we have all these amazing environmental and conservation scientists, some of the best in the world, absolutely. We have the solutions at hand. It's, it's a matter of political willpower that people, you know, can start putting these things in place. So... Yeah. Just to kind of, I guess, give you a bit of context, you know, even iconic species now, as we think about the koala as an example, the koala has now been uplisted to endangered in New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT. It's still doing relatively okay in parts of Victoria and and South Australia as well. But, you know, you think about something as iconic as the koala. Mm. The Great Barrier Reef has recently experienced another bleaching event, which is the sixth bleaching bleaching event in recent times. Um, you know, so of course, when we have multiple bleaching events on top of each other, it gives the coral very little chance to recover, yep. and that's d- directly linked with climate change. Um, wonderful gang gang cockatoos, which some people might see in and around Melbourne. Um, I like to call them the creaky door bird <laughs> because their call sounds a lot like Correct. a creaky door, and they have those beautiful sort of red um, crests on them. Yep. Um, very sort of small looking. Um, parrot similar to a galar in size so these are all you know species along with we have basically 1900 threatened species and ecological communities so you can think of a community a bit like an ecosystem so it's Mm. a whole whole range of different species together about a thousand of which actually are plants which often don't get much of a mention at all um so we have a very large number of species that are really up against it and the numbat would be an example Mm. of that and the point is that the situation's not getting better. It's getting worse. So, you know, we have uh, species extinction still happening. Species are still declining. And to give you an example of that, uh, threatened birds, mammals and plant populations, which have been monitored since 1985, have on average halved their population sizes. So, again, when we see populations going down, of course, the smaller they get, the more fragmented they get, the closer they are, of course, to extinction. So the situation is not getting better. And... Of course, we, we, the other thing that's frustrating is that we're, we're due to have um, a really large authoritative report called the State of the Environment Report, the 2021, and yep. that happens every five years. Right. So that was um, due to be handed out uh, earlier this year. It still hasn't seen the light of day for whatever reason. Um, so that would be a comprehensive assessment, essentially, of where we are um, in terms of the environment. But I've given you a quick rundown. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I find interesting about this too is that often, even when we do hear about it, and, and you know, you gave an example of this this morning, which is a great piece of news, but we hear about single species. Yeah. Um, we don't hear about that thread of the tapestry mm. that is the ecosystem, you yeah. know, and if you pull out, and, and you've talked many times yeah. about the dingo and various yeah. aspects yeah. of the role that, you know, individual species play within that ecosystem, and when you yeah. remove one, yep. it doesn't just affect that one, but it affects, you know, the entire sort yep. of biosphere that we're, we're engaging with. And we, we don't hear often about that. We, I mean, I suspect it's very hard to determine what the damage is beyond the one species as well, because, you know, we kind of know a little bit above it, a little bit below it, but, you know, laterally how it affects, you know, as you say, plants, all sorts of yeah. things. Is hard to determine. We yeah, no. So what we call um, co-extinctions, which is yeah, yeah. when one species goes extinct, another species is more likely to go extinct, and even what we call um, uh, extinction cascades. 
So one species goes extinct and then another one goes extinct and then, of course, there's kind of this knock-on effect throughout mm. the whole ecosystem. So a little bit like your car engine. You know, if one component breaks down and you don't do anything about it, yeah. it's very likely that other components will break down and all of a sudden you've got a car that just is non-functional. And yeah. so, you know, the Great Barrier Reef would be an example of that. When the, when the coral bleaches, the coral will eventually die. Uh, it will turn probably more likely into algae, will be replaced with algae, and you'll have an entirely different fish community. Likewise with uh, kelp forests around uh, Tasmania, which have disappeared because of warming waters, um, you lose those kelp forests, which is incredibly kind of complex habitats underwater, almost like a forest underwater. Mm. When they disappear, again, you lose the habitat for the fish and the other species. So you're dead right that, you know, it's not just losing one species, it's losing multiple species. And then it becomes this snowball effect because it, you know, sort of gains momentum on itself. And so... Um, and look, we know what the threats are uh, in in Australia. We have you know big problems with land clearing still, so quite high land clearing rates in New South Wales and Queensland in particular. Invasive species like feral cats and foxes, also rabbits, which have a really big impact, particularly on our um, native plants. We talked about climate change, which is sort of compounding everything, mm. uh, pollution, um, and disease as well. So things like chytrid fungus for our for our wonderful froggy friends. So. You know, we do face this huge range of problems. Um, the question is, what do we do about it? Because I don't want to sort of just dwell on the bad stuff yeah. because there's, yeah. there's a lot to talk about. I could talk about that for hours. But, um, you know, so one of the first things, of course, that we need is strengthen in environmental policy and law. So that's just a simple right. fact. So we had a big review called the Samuel Review, which was to look into the basically the sort of the landmark legislation, if you like, the main legislation in Australia, which is um, the EPPC Act, uh, um, which basically is sort of gives protection um, to threatened species in particular. And there was a large number of recommendations for that to improve and strengthen those laws to, to basically protect our native species. And they haven't been acted on, unfortunately. And so if we don't have strong laws, of course, then we're going to continue to see things like you know, development of coal mine, which yeah. is completely at odds, of course, with trying to conserve the Great Barrier Reef. So yeah. I'm not for a second saying that, you know, in society we have to always make trade-offs about industry and about, you know, uh, resources and how we use those, which are going to have an environmental yeah. impact. But absolutely at the moment we just don't have the balance right. Yeah. And, and until we sort of confront that, we're just going to keep seeing these sort of, you know, these, these issues. One of the things I struggle with is, you know, like if you said to me, we have to do this this year, I'd say, well, sorry, you're on too hard basket. That's not, yeah. it's not going to happen. But yep. we've been talking, you know, I've been doing the show now for 30 years. Yeah. We've been talking about this for much longer than that. Yeah. And so it's, it's not that we haven't had the opportunity no. to put in long-term strategic, you know, transitions uh, in some of these spaces, but we haven't done. There seems to be zero political will to to really, uh, you know, what, what I would like to see is something people get behind and are proud of, you know, like putting in place a really big effort that takes yeah. 15 years maybe, yeah. Yeah. but we're proud of. Yeah. And we don't seem to have that. There's little no. piecemeal bits here and there, and it's not that we're doing nothing. You know, there's bits going on, but yeah. they're kind of piecemeal by yeah. comparison to what we need. Yeah, I think it does show a failure of our sort of political system, and, and, and not in a partisan way. That I think, as you say, like, this is a public good. You know, mm. this benefits all of us, and so it should be ideally free of politics, and it should just be something, and I say this work, you know, deliberately, that we invest in. Yep. And if we invest in the environment, the rewards are huge. So it's not actually a cost at all. You know, when yep. we know about the social, the cultural benefits, including uh, Indigenous people have a lot of cultural association with, mm. with our species, the economic benefits are huge. I mean, billions of dollars for tourism per year for Australia because of our yep. wildlife and our ecosystems. Uh, and then the environmental benefits, you know, clean water, fresh air, yeah. uh, you know, parklands in our cities that we know have mental health benefits, mm. reduce crime rates, uh, add property value for those people who care about those things. So, you know, the, the, the benefits and range of benefits are extraordinary. And and yet, as you say, we, we're still not changing this. So, you know, it's estimated that for $1.7 billion per annum, we could recover our listed threatened species. So of the species yeah. that we know are in trouble for $1.7 billion per year, which is a tiny fraction of it's our so schedule. Little. It's so little. Yeah. <laughs> and we're spending far less than 10% of that. Yeah. to tackle that issue. So it is deeply frustrating that yeah. we don't just see this as a public good, like we might, as an example, education or health and so forth, and try and invest accordingly because of these these benefits. Mm. Um, and until we do so, yeah, we're, we're going to obviously continue to see these problems. And, and I think Australia too, one of the things I've always hoped, which I, I must admit this hope is being slowly but surely cremated, Gracie, can I use that <laughs> phrase, um, that, you know, 
I would like to travel overseas mm. and be able to speak to international people and be proud of yeah. what we're doing and saying you should do the same. Mm. When was the last time we could do that? No, I agree. And I often use the sort of comparison with sport. You know, the yeah. Australians are incredibly proud of oh, their sporting achievements. We're very good at sport. Good. And we do. We do punch well above our weight in terms of yeah. our sporting achievements. because we pay for it. Yeah. But we cannot <laughs> say the same for the environment. Yeah. Not even close. And so, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a sort of a, it's a sense of national shame. So... But, again, I guess I just want to emphasise the opportunities. You know, mm. if we sort of do change the way we see the environment and invest in accordingly, there's also amazing opportunities for Indigenous communities to basically um, have, uh, you know, self-determined land management, um, healing of what they refer to as countries, so, that, you know, the yep. areas that they're associated with and, and care for. Um, so there's there's massive benefits there. And huge benefits also on, on private property too because one of the things that, you know, people think about is that you know we, we conserve our nature in national parks mm. but national parks and conservation reserves are actually a tiny proportion yeah. of the land surface and the marine environment yep. that doesn't mean we can't conserve them outside of that and in fact you know about i think it's about 50 percent yeah about half of australia's threatened species occur on private land right so again if we had changes in the way that we approached private land con- conservation including potentially some incentives from government and so forth there's huge gains to be had so yeah. i guess again i just want to sort of i guess emphasize the opportunities and maybe i'm naive and just sort of ever hopeful that we might actually change the course of where we're on because yeah. at the moment Absolutely. It's not looking good good at all. So I think uh, Gracie sort of talking about embalming things and and dead things is is a perfect kind of analogy because that's what's happening, unfortunately, to a lot of our uh, threatened species. Thank you. And it's always good to talk to you about this. And I think there's there's so many opportunities. All the work is ahead of us. There's no doubt about that. But we we can do it. And actually, a lot of people can benefit. The majority of people. We have the know how, we have the skills, and the benefits could be huge. Yeah, it could be huge. We're almost out of time. Gracie, thanks so much for joining us. Have a fantastic Saturday night over there in the US. Thank you. And uh, good luck with uh, the embalming. Don't sleep with one eye open. That's all I say. Just sleep with one eye open. You just never know. Thanks, Gracie. Great to talk to you. Great to be here. Thanks. Folks, uh, we're going to hand over in a second to the team from Eat It. Ewan, good to have you on the show as always. always. Good to have you in the studio. I'm Dr. Shane. Folks, remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again uh, next week. Have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.